Welcome to Engineering Career Journeys, brought to you by Australia-wide Engineering Recruitment. This is a podcast series where we interview prominent senior engineers from across Australia and delve deeper into their career journeys and how they got where they are today. We hope that this will inspire and assist up-and-coming engineers in planning their own careers. Now over to your host, David Armstrong, General Manager of Australia-wide Engineering Recruitment. Greetings and welcome to today's conversation with Eamon Kelly. Eamon started his engineering career as an electrical apprentice with the British Steel Corporation in the mid-1970s. After 10 years in industrial engineering, Eamon moved on to become a chartered electrical engineer in the mid-90s. He has delivered major water supply and wastewater infrastructure projects in many countries around the world, including the UK, Pakistan, Bangladesh and China and is now a senior leader within the Australian water sector. Since arriving in Australia in the late 90s, Eamon has held senior executive roles at Melbourne Water, Connex, Black and & Veatch and Tees, and is currently enjoying his second spell at Melbourne Water as the general manager for major program delivery. Hi Eamon, thanks so much for joining us and let's get started. Thanks Dave, thanks for having me. Thanks Eamon. Why, Eamon, did you choose engineering, please, and ultimately electrical engineering as your field of study? Well, when I was growing up, Dave, I, I wasn't really academically minded. I could always get average grades without trying too hard. But school for me was really just a vehicle to meet my friends and play sport. You know, if I wasn't playing sport, I was always thinking about playing sport. And every waking hour outside of my, my school days were kicking a football or throwing a rugby ball or hitting a tennis ball. And I just loved it. So as a result, uh, by the time I got to an age where I needed to think about what's next after school, which in the UK in those days, in the mid-70s, was, uh, was your fifth year at school, where you focused on your O-levels, they were called then. And before you do A-levels in what is the equivalent to Australian grades 11 and 12 before you go off to college. You know, in the fifth year, you decide you've already set the O-levels that you're working on and you need to decide whether you're going to go on and do your A-levels after that. And that was never going to be for me. I was studying six O-levels at the time. And of course, as soon as as soon as soon the school said, well, we're going to give you four weeks off to, um, to go and study for your O-levels, I could be found every day down the tennis courts having a hit because I couldn't just, I couldn't help myself. Luckily for me though, you know, I'd, I had been talking to the um, career advisors that time and, and I always had a, a natural affinity for maths. Maths is one of those subjects I found easy, strangely. And so when I was talking to the career advisors and explained my passion for being outside and wanting to work outside in some form of career, I think they sort of recognised that probably, you know, I was always thinking about sort of either bricklaying or carpentry, doing six O levels and, and having a bit of a passion for maths. Uh, they thought maybe something more cerebral might uh, fit the bill. And so they sort of directed me towards this electrical apprenticeships, which were available to apply for. So I was, I was happy to, to do that electrical or electronics and physics at school also quite fascinated me. And so I, I was drawn to that. I interviewed for a four-year apprenticeship with the British Steel Corporation at that time, which was seen as quite a, a good apprenticeship to, to acquire. I was successful in that, which obviously then led me to take my foot right off the academic pedal and go down to tennis courts and practice <laughs> rather than rather than study for my O-levels. As a result, I, got, I, I was successful in one O-level. <laughs> that was maths. So I got three uh, fails and two ungraded. 
So, so um, but became a yeah. tennis champion though. But, but I was okay at tennis, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I did have my job, and I could always remember the chief electrical engineer pulling me in about uh, six weeks into the job and saying, "We employed you on the basis that we thought you had a reasonable academic future ahead. Look at these results. What happened? You know." But I was quite honest with uh, with him at that stage, and I was already in the job, and and it was a great apprenticeship. It gave me everything I wanted. It gave a real meaning to to the learning going forward and that learning was you know more practical learning and I could see any of the academic stuff that needed to back that up then had a purpose you know and I could connect those and so I learned much more easily in that sort of environment yeah so did a, did a four-year trade apprenticeship and then worked in engineering for a further six years uh, as a maintenance technician what a great way to start hey, mm. what was the biggest turning point which accelerated your career I knew I needed to kick my career on in a different direction because working on the tools wasn't enough for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I started looking around for other job opportunities and I managed to secure a role with um, Sir M. McDonald and Partners Consulting Engineers in Cambridge as an electrical technician. They were engineering consultants. So, so predominantly they were taking, uh, every year they would have an intake of engineering graduates from college and train them up to become chartered engineers. But they'd ran into a few problems on some projects where they they didn't have the technical or trade sort of background to, to sort these problems out. So Sir McDonald Partners did focus in the water industry, which led me into the water industry. And most of their projects were international projects overseas, funded by what was then the Overseas Development Agency out of the UK. And so a lot of projects in the third world delivering water services to third world countries. And then once you're out in those third world countries, you have to be quite flexible and, and innovative in terms of how you deliver some of those projects. And, and they'd run into a few technical, practical problems from an engineering sense, which, which weren't going to be solved by graduate engineers and to some degrees, even career consulting engineers who didn't have the practical experience to bring to those sorts of problems. And so I was one of the first electrical technicians that they actually employed, recognising that they needed some more practical engineering experience in some of these projects to, mm-hmm. to help solve some of those problems. And so I joined them in 1987. They gave me uh, the opportunity then very quickly to work overseas, and I delivered a project in, in Somalia. Mm. Uh, which is some exciting places uh, we're on the cusp of civil war and the like (laughs) there was an irrigation project in Somalia that I worked on there was uh, a couple of smaller projects in Pakistan in Karachi and then they asked me to um, to go out on a project in Pakistan on a 12-month basis Uh, and it was just myself and my wife at that stage they wanted me to go out there on my own I said I wasn't going to go without my wife. They gave in to that uh, request. And uh, so we both went out there. It was a real adventure. And to me, that was a turning point for me because it made me realise that there was a lot more to electrical engineering, that the solid foundation that I'd built in that practical sense now, what I needed to do was was fill those gaps in the um, in the academic that I hadn't filled in the 10 years and the school because I was too busy playing sport. Yeah. Uh, by this time, my body was pretty wrecked, actually, but uh, and uh, and the sport was giving way then to, well, I've got to make a, a career out of this. And so working overseas on those projects in the short term gave me the um, impetus to come back mm-hmm. to the UK then for a three-year period, and Mott McDonald sponsored me through college to get my electrical engineering degree. And by that 
that time I was around 30, 30, 31 by the time I graduated. Yes. My nickname at college was Dad because uh, <laughs> by then I'd, I'd had one child and by the time I finished my college degree, I had two children and I was studying with a bunch of uh, young kids that had come straight through their A-levels and, and into college without really knowing why they were there studying electrical engineering and what that was going to give them at the end and what sort of career they could develop from this from this course they were on you know where whereas i was coming from the other end of the equation where where this was a means to an end i could see Mm. exactly i knew exactly why i was there i knew i could put the practical spin on the engineering disciplines and theories that we were learning and so i got a i got a lot out of that college degree at that time in my life and i recognize i was very fortunate to to have that opportunity to go back and study whilst i still had a young family and i was sponsored to do that very difficult to do that mid-career if you don't have that organizational sponsorship uh, and support which which was invaluable and so i graduated with an electrical engineering degree i was still working at uh, what was then mott mcdonald and is still to this day mott mcdonald out of the uk and then became chartered and so and that was that was the real changing point taking me from that practical Mm. technical base into the consulting and engineering and to become a fully chartered engineer because that that transition has to happen at some stage have you had many mentors along the way Eamon and if so how much have they actually helped you when you reflect on your career whether you formally associate that relationship as a mentor mentee relationship or not uh, i think uh, most people can look back and say they you know they can hang that mentor sort of uh, label on a lot of people they come across but um but i i do always go back to you know when i went into that apprenticeship i was pretty green I, it was all about sport for me <laughs> and one of my first tradesmen that i worked with was a young small scottish guy nearly sort of Scottish guy called Ian Gaffney, who was a very capable electrician, maintenance technician. Again, true British steel, had come up through their apprenticeship and knew his stuff. And But it wasn't just the technical stuff he taught me. He taught me you know, the, the life lessons I carry through with me today. I can still hear his uh, Scottish accent telling me, you know, you never know everything. Don't, you don't think you know everything because you don't, which means you can always learn from anybody. Whoever you're talking to, what could you learn from them? Because that's an opportunity. Every time you have a conversation, there's an opportunity to learn. Uh, And always treat people with respect. That was his mantra and one that I had an affinity with and and that's something that uh, I've carried with me to this day. The other thing was never be afraid to ask the dumb questions. Because if you've got any questions in your mind you don't get answered, that's a risk. And you're working in an environment that can become incredibly risky. You know, Mm. working with live electricity etc he was uncompromising in that safety space even back Mm. in those days when safety wasn't a patch on what it is today and so again i consider myself incredibly lucky to to have been under ian's wing for best part of three or four years you know and i learned a lot through that time yeah and as i say i carry that with me today never shy of asking stupid questions <laughs> whenever people use acronyms with me i say what does that mean hmm. and and it's incredible how many times people say oh i don't actually know well what are you using it for then <laughs> you know but, yeah you know, and often you ask the questions that people have got in their heads anyway and and they just haven't got the courage to ask them because they think they'll be judged 
the only thing I judge people when they ask me questions is thank you for asking the question. It shows you're listening. It shows you want to learn. And you can learn from anybody. And sure. I tell people that to this day. Do you, in the, in the way Ian was a mentor for you, do you mentor people yourself, Eamon? Yes, I do. I, I'm passionate about uh, yep. about mentoring. I've got um, three mentees with me at the moment who, who I Skype with at present, obviously. And I find that quite rewarding. You know, I like to see the energy and the passion. All engineers, all up and coming engineers, the energy and the passion they bring to the industry um, and some of the challenges they face. It's not about dictating to them. It's it's just about getting to, to realise the skills they have and how they can better use them. I always use the analogy as they're carrying around the toolbox because that's what I used to do, carry around my toolbox. And you've got lots of tools in there. And some, the tools you use all the time are pretty sharp and well honed. The tools that are in there that you don't use all the time are pretty dull. And when you get them out, you probably don't use them with a lot of skill. And so sometimes it, it, it's, uh, it's worth practicing with some of those and getting, getting good with all of the tools in your tool bag. And yes, yeah, so I, I, I use that quite a bit. Probably people get bored of listening about my tool bag, but uh, <laughs> oh, it's a great I, still, I still use it. <laughs> no, very good, very good. So after becoming a qualified engineer, have you done any postgrad studies along the way? Not formal studies. You know, I always have this conversation with um, my mentees, a lot of people that come and ask me if they, uh, they want to do uh, business management sort of courses or you know further postgrad studies because they think that will bolster their career mm. i always temper their enthusiasm with that a little bit by saying you know well do you really know why you want to do it i mean like i said i go back to think about when i went back to do my degree i had a real purpose for doing that i knew exactly what that was going to provide me and what i was going to do with that piece of paper and absolutely needed that because without that degree, I wasn't going to get chartered. It was a prerequisite. The, some of the courses that fly around these days that I see around the MBAs and all the courses in between, a formal MBA, etc. Mm. you know, that there's hundreds of courses you, you can do and they, and they all cost a lot of money. And I, I wouldn't knock them. I think they are appropriate for some people, but as long as they're leading a means to an end, as long as it's not just people trying to grasp onto something that's get, trying to give them some sort of a leg up in their career where they don't really understand how they're going to use it because nine times out of ten they'll never use it and and therefore to me you may get some additional learning out of it but it's never going to be an effective way of career development mm-hmm. and, and that's not for everybody I mean you know for me I never felt the need to to do those postgraduate studies I I, I still like and sell the 70 20 10 sort of learning model, 70% of learning is on the job. It's it's internal and it's your day-to-day what you do and learning through asking people, through having the conversations, et cetera, et cetera, through making mistakes. Fantastic way of learning is make a mistake. You'll never forget it, you know. Don't repeat it. Uh, no, that's right. That's <laughs> right. Once, once you're here, yeah, uh, well, that's incompetence, isn't it? Once you start <laughs> repeating your mistakes. Um, but, but yeah, the 70, 20, 10, you know, the, the 20% is just out from your networks and the people that you're, mm-hmm. you're dealing with. And the 10% is more formal learning, which is where I put the postgraduate stuff, 10%. And so, so if you really feel you need it, then do it. That's fine. Yeah, a lot of the postgraduate stuff probably spreads across the 70, 20, 10 as well. I understand that. But, um, 
Mm. But formally, it sits in that 10% box, and therefore there, there's a lot more opportunity to to learn and gain experience if you're in the right role, working with the right people, in and around the right people, and always attuned to to and, and have a learning mindset, a listening and learning mindset. Are you involved in any personal development yourself to stay abreast of changes within your area? From time to time. I mean, I do, I attend within the water industry, you know, uh, AWA functions, etc. cetera, mm-hmm. some online learning, my interest, and in, I'll listen into some of those. What I find far more benefit in terms of industry learning is, um, is I use my networks uh, over the years, uh, you know, when you get to uh, the senior sort of age you've built up a pretty strong network of friends and they become friends and they're not just working colleagues or or uh, or acquaintances you know the people you keep close generally become your friends and mm. and so and you still work to get together with those guys people and and share stories share issues you know how you work through issues how you can help each other work through issues you know you're there to support each other Mm. etc and so i've always been strong on building networks and keeping abreast of what's happening Mm. you know and even across the the, victorian industry or construction industry now i can very easily keep abreast of what's happening in the industry because i tend to have people i know and 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 classes friends in in most areas of that industry um because it's a bit of a goldfish bowl, you know, and we all swim around bumping into each other. And those people you find a bit of an affinity with, you tend to stay in touch with, and it's a, it, it becomes a bit of a family in the end. The value of a good network shouldn't be underestimated? Uh, not at all. No, strong networks is uh, a vital. And, you know, I see today a lot of people measure their networks by the number of followers they have on LinkedIn or, or, or mm. friends they have on LinkedIn, you know. And I think those um, social media sort of uh, avenues are, are fantastic, but there is no replacement for those face-to-face networks, you know, even in this sort of restricted environment we're in at the moment. Probably the biggest thing people are losing is those face-to-face opportunities sure. with, their, with their networks and people that they, that they get a lot out of. What would you say your greatest challenge was during your career up, up to now and, and, and uh, looking back, how did you overcome it? Um, I've got to say, my, the greatest challenge in my career wasn't a technical challenge at all or a, or a necessarily a, a, it certainly did affect my career. But the biggest challenge I've, I've faced is, is as a young engineer, you know, and, and working with Sir McDonald and Partners, when you get the opportunities to work on different projects, they're not always in your backyard, you know. You can't have a project just down the road. If I wanted to just work down the road, I would have stayed in the industrial factory I did my apprenticeship with, you know. So... I had to become more mobile, and when I finished my degree, I had two children, and the, and the first job I was put on was a, an industrial effluent treatment plant up in um, Grimsby. I was living in uh, Cambridge at the time, and, and uh, I travelled up to Grimsby on a Monday morning, and I came back on a Friday night, and my two children were growing up, not seeing a lot of their father, only on weekends, and, um, which I found very challenging. And then I got an opportunity to start working over in China, and that sort of grew into you know from a go over to Shanghai for four weeks and then come back for two or three weeks and go over for six weeks and then come back and the and the spells I was spending over in Shanghai were extending to the point where 
it just wasn't tenable. And I, I just had to say, well, you know, I can't continue to work like this. Mm. I'm happy to do the project. I'm really committed to the project, which was the Shanghai Environment Project, fantastic project that I actually got onto that project in the early stages of feasibility. It was a, a World Bank-funded project to overseas funds to the, to the Chinese government. Uh, we were engaged by the World Bank to administer those funds and run the project with the Chinese, with the local Chinese water company. We really got in there at the early, in the early stages of feasibility and optioneering and there was an opportunity for for me to go out on the project full time, but I wasn't going to do that without my family. And so it was a big decision for me to take to to move my wife and then three children, three girls, over to Shanghai for what was then an indeterminate period because uh, it could have been one or two years. It ended up being six years uh, on that one project, and and that was great because. We made the sacrifice and moved over there. I don't think my mother-in-law has ever forgiven me for kidnapping her three grandchildren and taking them overseas. But uh, to this day, she probably hasn't forgiven me. And, and the girls are now in their 30s, so because I brought them to Australia as well. Um, and she's still back in the UK. That was a great. It was a great experience for the girls. It wasn't without hardship initially in the early 90s over in Shanghai. It wasn't the Shanghai it is today. I mean, we were there doing the master planning for the water and sewage infrastructure that actually supports the city today. You know, so building a new water supply a network, building a new sewage network, a new sewage treatment plants, etc. And, and getting in that early stage of feasibility and then moving through to the construction supervision as well with the Chinese people and, and the design institutes uh, was a, a great satisfaction for me from an engineering perspective because there's not many projects. You know, Often you come into projects a little bit late and you might leave them a little bit early. I always encourage engineers to try and stick with projects from where to go because you get a real sense of satisfaction around, look what I delivered or I helped sure. deliver. You know, yeah. whereas if you just come in early, late, whatever, you've, you, you've contributed, but you don't get that sense of completion. I managed to get that in Shanghai before I moved down to Australia in, in 99. So, yep. like I say, uh, that was Wasn't a challenge. Easy. Yeah, I bet. It, it I was bet. a challenge. work life before it, became a, yeah. before it became a term we use. Based on mm. your experience then, what advice would you give to, to young engineers in regards to hitting the balance between work and life? Oh, look, look, when you're young, certainly when you're young and you don't have those family responsibilities, go for it. The world is your oyster, you know, literally. And if you get the opportunity to work overseas or work in the, in the outback or work anywhere that's different, go for it. Stretch yourself. Go somewhere where you don't have all those support networks and you have to think on your feet and you have to you, you can really grow and grow very quickly in those sorts of environments. You know, I remember a, I remember a project in Bangladesh that I went over. It was relatively short term. I was only there for three months. Just me and my wife went over there. And it was actually when we were in Pakistan, we flicked to Bangladesh just to help out on the second Chittagong water supply project. And, and it was at the, towards the end of that project when I was doing, helping out with some commissioning and witnessed some commissioning tests. And I wanted some specific tests done, and this is a little bit of electrical engineering happening here. 
I wanted some specific tests done on the, I had to do a protection coordination study and then set the protection relays up for the, for the commissioning. But we didn't have a proprietary injection test kit where you can inject currents onto the, onto the um, secondary circuits and then set the protection relays accordingly. And you just had to think on your feet. One of the, the young electrical guys there said, well, we can go, we can make one. And I mm. said, well, where, where can we get the parts? And he said, well, the local shipyard, you know. And we went down to the shipbreaker's yard in Bangladesh where everything was broken up and sold. And we cobbled together some old voltage and uh, voltmeters and ammeters and, and a couple of coils and, and, a, and a battery and, a, you know, and just from first principles, we, mm. we threw together this Heath Robinson sort of secondary injection test kit that, uh, that we could do a reasonable calibration on these protection relays so and that stays with me i mean just the ingenuity of these people in the third world working with what they've got and having to think on their feet mm. you know you learn so much and, and and it helps you grow as a as an engineer as a person you know i've I have a lot of respect for the chinese you know working uh, they, they're getting a lot of um, criticism at the moment in the press for the way they operate. But one thing you can't fault China on is their, the passion that they grow in their people. The young engineers are passionate about China and they're passionate about learning whatever they can and giving back to their country. Um, and, that, and that's really, um, really good to see when, when you actually work alongside these people. And the learning the academic learning that they have and their ability to exercise that in a day-to-day -day environment. There's, there's a lot we can learn from China and, and unfortunately the politics of the world is a bit of a hurdle to that at the moment, which is disappointing mm. for me. Mm. I'm not much of a politician, as you can tell, but uh, <laughs> you can learn a lot from everybody, yep. including different cultures, different different countries. Great advice, know. great advice. I, I love the way you put it. Just go for it. Uh, I think that's that's a, that's a very powerful. Yeah, message. when you're young, and then and then when you've got family commitments, etc., then obviously it's a bit more of a balance. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And and as long as you have a supportive family and you, and you talk things through and you work as a team, then you can still achieve your goals. Then there's challenges and sacrifices that uh, may need to be made, but I would suggest nine times out of ten, you you get repaid. That sort of experience and that and the demonstration that you're prepared to give it a go just adds to that tool bag. You strike me as someone who who views a problem as an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. You, Every you, problem is an opportunity, isn't it? Absolutely. And you're yeah. you're somebody who likes to provide solutions. Yeah. Absolutely. And still to this day, which I get criticised for, <laughs> uh, always the problem solver. And that goes back to that goes back to when I was fixing machines in, in the late 1970s, you know, always looking at problems and trying to solve them. A great attribute to have. If there was anything you could do differently, Eamon, looking back, is, is there anything during your career that you would do differently? I don't think so. You know, I've reflected on this previously and if I had my time again, would I knuckle down at school and do my A-levels and shortcut? Would I shortcut my career if I had my time again to become a chartered engineer earlier? I'd certainly have earned more money if I did that, you know. So if, if money was the driver, then that could have been an option because obviously the longer you stay on the tools and, you know, I was I could always earn good money and, and, and but once you get into the engineering and then and then a chartered engineer, you command a greater salary, et cetera, et cetera. So you, there's always these offsets 
around decisions you make. But when I'm mentoring people, when I'm talking to people, when I interview people, I'm always looking for that solid foundation in the younger people today or those people that are prepared to take the time to build that solid foundation because I see far too many young engineers these days that that really don't believe they should afford that time to build that foundation. Mm-hmm. They want to be people leaders before mm-hmm. they're good engineers. Mm-hmm. They want to be senior leaders before they're good mm-hmm. people leaders. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have the opportunities to bounce up the ladder without getting that foundation right, then you may see yourself as, as successful in terms of, you know, you're in a position of, of authority or senior management. But if people below you scratch the surface and there's not much there in terms of support you can give them, technical advice you could give them, anything they need in terms of true leadership, then they can see that. And I always say that, the you know, the best feedback true leaders can get is from the people they lead. And, and if you're seen as a good leader and if you're respected as a good leader, then you're doing the right things, you know, and, and that's more about caring for the people you're leading than just trying to promote yourself through whatever uh, fast track mechanism you've uh, laid out for yourself, you know. Get the foundations yeah. right, learn from people, treat people with respect. That's a solid yeah. sort of uh, base to build on, you know. And a sustainable one as well, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely sustainable. I mean, I'm 60 this year. I'll be retiring within the next three or four years, five years, you know, and I'm still used trotting out the same lines I was trotting out 40 years ago, you know. (laughs) Very good. What streams of engineering do you think, Eamon, would provide the best career opportunities for engineering moving into the future? Oh, look, look, engineering's moved so fast, doesn't it? Science and engineering is moving so quickly now. When I look back at, you know, when I started my career, you know, I had a slide rule. I didn't even have a calculator. The old LED calculators were just coming out uh, in the late 70s. When I moved over to uh, to Shanghai, was the first time I'd, I'd got a personal laptop. Didn't have a computer before then. It was all written words, cutting and pasting and pouring over drawings, paper drawings and scribbling all over them, you know. You know, engineering is moving so fast. I think digital engineering is a very broad term at the moment. I think it's it's a fantastic opportunity that's opening up certainly all over the world and and a lot of countries are ahead of Australia in this, particularly in Europe and the UK. Digital engineering is far more advanced than than we've um, progressed it here. But I see that that's a real opportunity. So young engineers come out and have so many digital tools now available to them, you know. So a focus in the skills and attributes around how to use those effectively, I think is a really good focus that can provide a level of sustainability because the engineers today, once they get into that field, they have to move with it and they're more than capable of moving with it. And it's going to break down the walls of intellectual property and it's going to bring down the cost of construction. It's going to make us more efficient because we and we have to share more. When we've designed a pump station, we've designed a, a treatment plant, anything, you know, we can share that information and data so readily now. And we've got to be making more of that. Break down those barriers between 
competing design consultants, competing contractors, et cetera, et cetera. If we're gonna, if we're really gonna get to a level of efficiency that we need to to be truly sustainable, because I think we all know that um, where we are at the moment in terms of environmental sustainability and general sustainability, we've got a, a lot of thinking to do and a lot of development to do. And and it's the young engineers now coming into the into the industry now and over the next ten years are going to be at the forefront of that thinking. You know, it's not going to be it's not going to be the likes of me that are going to be hanging up their boots and uh, whittling away a piece of wood in in ten years. It's uh, which I do, which I am getting back to now. I'm getting back to my workshop and and making little toys for my new grandson, and which I really enjoy. <laughs> uh, and I'll be leaving all this digital world behind soon, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fascinating, fascinating! You've been very generous with your time, Eamon. It's been a real pleasure to hear a little bit about about your story. Well, one final question, if I may, just as a sort of summary and, and from your perspective, what are the key messages for you that you'd like to share with up-and-coming engineers? If you're an up-and-coming engineer, you've made the right choice. For the, It's the first message, you know. We need more engineers, and you're coming into an industry that, that uh, where opportunity abounds. As I've just said, you know, the pace we're moving at is phenomenal, and, and I'd love to be a young engineer coming into the industry now. Uh, you know, we're coming in at any time, really, but I've done my dash. But, um, but I'd go back to that level of patience. One of my most prolific catchphrases that anyone, if you talk to, to anyone that's worked with me over the years, they, they, they will know that I use a lot, is Rome wasn't built in a day. Take your time. If you're a young engineer, you've got a whole career ahead of you, take your time to learn, take your time to build your networks, take your time to fill that foundation out because that that is what's going to sustain you through your career and it's really going to set you up for success. Don't try and run before you can walk. I'm a great one, all these uh, one-liners, you know. Just take your time, learn every day, treat everyone with respect. All those life lessons I learned from being a little Scottish man years and years ago, they still ring in my ears and I'd like them to ring in everybody's ears, really. They're coming into the engineering as a career because the, the, the more we lean on each other, support each other, uh, I think the more we learn and the better the outputs that we, uh, that we create. So, yeah. Engineering, it's a great career. It's a great career. Yeah. Some very powerful messages there and some really interesting takeaways. I loved your comment, the world needs more engineers. Mm. What, a, what, what, a, what a great statement. Eamon, it's been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much, General Manager for Melbourne Water, Eamon Kelly. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dave. It's been a pleasure. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast episode of Engineering Career Journeys. Please like, subscribe and provide feedback. Australia-wide engineering recruitment can be found at australiawide.com.au or on our LinkedIn page. We look forward to presenting more interviews with interesting engineers shortly.